It seems like many people think that talking about money is more taboo than talking about sex or politics. So wrote a financial blogger. Recently, she continued, I was on Facebook and someone I know asked their friends how much money they were saving each month. It seemed like a pretty harmless question. They explained that they were asking for real numbers because they just began saving and simply wanted to talk about others about saving money. Then someone commented with something like, sharing actual numbers is disgusting. Use percentages if you must. The conversation continued and others chimed in and it became clear that openly talking about money made some people angry. There was an overwhelming amount of people who said the whole conversation was tacky and that money should not be discussed ever. She asked the question, she goes on, why does talking about money have to be so secretive? Is it really that tacky? She cites a survey that found 70% of Americans think it is rude to talk about money. Talking about money is even seen as taboo among close family members, even among married couples. According to a survey done by Fidelity, 43% of respondents don't know how much their partner earns. And 36% are unaware of how much they have invested. Here's one last interesting study I'd like to bring up, she says. University College London found that people were seven times more likely to talk to a stranger about sex, affairs, and sexually transmitted diseases than discussing their salary. You tell a stranger that you have an STD rather than tell them how much you make. And she says, this is just crazy. And she concludes by saying, I think we should all be more open about money. Money is a topic that influences all of our lives, whether we want to believe it or not. Now, on that specific point, she is in agreement with the Bible. And the Apostle Paul would agree with her, though he would concur that money indeed is a sensitive topic. Now, Nick pointed that out last week. As Paul is thanking the Philippians for the financial support they have sent him, something that seems to have come from a previous commitment, Paul does address it with great sensitivity. He is aware that he could be misunderstood. There were many, even in this early stage of the Christian faith, who preached the gospel for their own profit who took advantage of the hopes and hardships of others. Paul himself was wrongly accused of this, and he went to great lengths to distance himself from it. Well, we know today of the ongoing damage to the reputation of Jesus and his church by those whose sole aim is to grow rich off the back of vulnerable people. One story, we could, we could review one terrible anecdote after another. One story after another of palatial homes, extravagant lifestyles gained by unscrupulous church leaders supposedly following in the pathway of Jesus. Well, with the proliferation of prosperity preachers, we are tempted to never talk about money. 
And on the other side, silence robs us of a very tangible way to partner with others to see the kingdom of God grow. And into this nonsense, Paul and the Philippian church bring some sense. And they model for us a non-manipulative, I should have got rid of that word earlier, non-manipulative. They modeled that for us. And a value shared, a value shared generosity. And it expresses both mutual friendship and love for the gospel. This kind of giving and receiving yields freedom and joy and blessing to the giver and does no damage to the reputation of Jesus and his church. So I called this message this morning, is it really more blessed to give than to receive? That's our title today. And um, maybe, maybe you're uncertain of where this saying comes from. The Guardian cites the source of this saying, this well-known saying, as simply an old adage. Time Magazine calls it an old saying. Science Daily says it is better to give and receive. But the words, it is more blessed to give than receive, are from the mouth of Jesus. Acts 20, verse 35 And though this saying has entered our popular lexicon, and we all give it the appropriate head nod, well, of course, we still find it, don't we, a great challenge to actually believe it and practice it as believers. Our scripture today will challenge our unbelief. Let's stand, will you? And I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 of chapter 4, and we'll read to the end of the book. That's like eight or nine verses. (laughs) Paul wrote this. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a body of believers open to whatever you want to say to us this morning. May every word that you want communicated, God, be expressed. May every one you don't not be. So that we all together can learn this morning 
and experience the power of the Holy Spirit coming over us, shaping us and forming us, that we might experience the peace and presence of you, Father, that we might be taught by you, that we might learn how to live, that we might experience freedom and joy in this respect of our lives, that we too might share a mutual friendship and a love for the gospel and then experience freedom in our giving and in the way that we view our possessions. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. So this is the end of our journey through Philippians. And it's clear from this last section that it is a thank you letter, along with the other areas of faith and practice that Paul has seen fit to address. And through this, thank, this, this letter, this thank you, we see the texture of healthy giving. Healthy giving in the New Testament church emerges not from one person extorting others, but from shared values. And what are those shared values? I see two, mutual friendship and love for the gospel. Let's go deeper with both of these. Mutual friendship and love for the gospel. First, mutual friendship. We learned last week, or the the first week, the very first week, how this letter fits an ancient form of friendship letters. This letter is oozing with overtures of friendship between Paul and the Philippians. Scholars point even to the construction of the language in verse 15 of giving and receiving as the language of friendship in the ancient world. If you look back at verses 10 and 11, it seems to indicate that this was a talked about gift, an expected gift, but something delayed the Philippians from the giving of it. Remember how we said this was a 900-mile trip, likely all by foot, could, part of it could have been by sea, from Philippi to Rome, and a dangerous one. Epaphroditus, who was charged with the delivery of the gift, became ill and almost died. This whole story made me remember that in the mid-90s, after the collapse of communism, this church, we were taking uh, mission trips nearly every year in the middle, late 90s and early 2000s to the city of Kiev in the country of Ukraine, former Soviet Union. There we teamed with some missionary friends to do the work of evangelism and discipleship and church planting. And because the entire infrastructure of the country had collapsed and was in rebuilding mode, and at that time the, 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 the country was really run by, by uh, the economics so much by, by the underworld, by the mafia, um, because of that, the missionaries could not use the normal banking system. And so it was incumbent on teams flying from the U.S. to carry with them the payroll for multiple missionaries. And those teams didn't come every month. So as it was, several of us were carrying on our person literally thousands of dollars. 
And when you carry money like that into a different country, still somewhat unstable, you do feel like there is a target on your back. Certainly, that's what this team must have felt. There's no way Epaphroditus was sent alone. This team must have felt that as they left Philippi. And of course, all the more given how vulnerable they were, far more vulnerable than we were in their context. So Paul wants to express appreciation for this gift. And notice how he's not denying his need for it. He's not over-spiritualizing it. Life in a Roman prison, I mean, those gifts were necessary for survival. At the same time, when Paul says, I don't desire your gift, what he's saying is not that he doesn't appreciate it. What he's saying is that, is that I don't covet it. I don't demand the gift. He has already concluded that his love for his friends does not hinge on receiving the gift. He has learned to be content in poverty. So in this way, Paul goes beyond the law of reciprocation. So thick in the ancient world. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Paul is free from covetousness. And his contentment, he's content with his material position. That thus frees him to look at this giving exchange and look to their benefit and their reward. Now the freedom is there because God is part of the giving and receiving equation. Here's the radical notion. Paul, when faced by poverty does not believe that God has withdrawn his love from him. Now, friends, that was a radical belief in the ancient world, and it's still a radical belief today. So in this, in this sense, Paul can say, I don't desire your gift. Paul's main interest thus, thus was in what could be credited to the Philippian account and given the entire friendship context of the letter, I think we must take Paul at his word here. This is his genuine heart desire, not just some fundraising spin. I think a lot of us in the 21st century who are so cynical and so skeptical, that's what we would conclude. Oh yeah, Paul, it's good fundraising spin there. But I think we must take him at his word. He is saying Philippians, when you invest in the kingdom of God, you are making a strategic investment and it comes with compounding interest. He is using this kind of commercial language in verse 17. One pastor commenting on this section, Daryl Dash asked, is Paul referring to a future reward or present reward? I think it is both. He then quotes Australian scholar Peter O'Brien, he said this, the picture painted by the accounting metaphor is one of compound interest that accumulates all the time until the last day. The apostle has employed this commercial language to show that he has set his heart on an ongoing permanent gain for the Philippians in the spiritual realm. The advantage that accrues to them as a result of their generous giving is God's blessing in their lives by which they continually grow in the graces of Christ until the parousia or until Christ returns. Interest compounds now and for eternity into their account. 
So still free to look at this from their perspective. Look at what Paul does next. If you can see in your text or your device, Paul moves from a commercial metaphor in verse 18. Again, you English teachers, you don't, you know, Paul just, he really mixes the metaphors here. He's going to drive you crazy. He moves from a commercial metaphor in verse 18 to a sacrificial metaphor of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, from verse 17 to verse 18. And he does this to emphasize that their gift is a delight to God. Look at that verse to appreciate how he just piles on the descriptors about their gift, fragrant, acceptable, pleasing. What did an offering express in the Old Testament? An offering was intended to express, an offering was intended to express a heart given to God in utter abandonment, gratitude, and dedication. Paul bridges from that picture to their gift, suggesting that when we see another person in need and generously sacrifice to meet it, God delights to accept that sacrifice. Then in the climax, look at verse 19. Paul said, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Now, as Dash wrote, I'm a bit nervous with this one. I'm going to sound like a prosperity preacher. But Dash goes on to say rightly that this principle is repeated so much it simply cannot be ignored. For example, in Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, give and it will be given you. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11 says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. You see, where prosperity preachers go sideways is that they see the, that they see the blessing only through a very particular Americanized version of financial success something that could not have been in Jesus's mind. This certainly is not a get-quick-rich scheme, but it is a promise. I really like what Gordon Fee wrote about this. He, he broadens out the meaning of this, God meeting our needs, God supplying our needs. So for example, he writes, in the midst of their poverty, Philippians, and they were impoverished, God will meet your material needs. Philippians, in the midst of your present suffering, in the face of your opposition, God will meet what is needed. Endurance, joy, steadfastness. Philippians, in your need to advance the faith with one mind, God will meet your need for grace and humility. Philippians, in the place of complaining, chapter 2, our anxiety early in chapter 4, God will be present with you as the God of peace. Fee goes on to describe the comparison of how God will supply your needs. Just keep focused on this verse. God will supply your needs in the breathtaking symmetry with the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. And summarizing fee here, 
He says the generosity of the Philippians, their generosity is exceeded beyond all imagination by the lavish wealth of the eternal God. God's riches are those inherent to his being God, creator and Lord of all. Nothing lies outside his rightful ownership and domain. They are in his glory in a sense that his riches exist in the sphere of God's glory, where God dwells in infinite splendor and majesty. The glory that is his is God alone. This is not some exceptional activity. Rather, it's in, in accordance with his norms. The infinite riches of grace that belong to God's own glory will come their way to meet every need. And it'll come your way to meet your every need. Now, look at the final words on this. The final words of that verse, in Christ Jesus. God's final word on this is not merely an abstract heavenly one, but in a word or rather in a name that combines heaven and earth. It is in Jesus Christ. Paul sees clearly that it is in Jesus that God has made his love known and available to human creatures. The letter is all about him, isn't it? It begins with him and it concludes with him. You know, friends, here is a reality that Louise and I have experienced and I have personally seen it in individuals' lives and in churches' lives through my decades of ministry time and time and time again. God blesses generous people. God blesses generous churches. It is sometimes financially, but is oftentimes in other ways, what we might call true riches. The more you give or the more churches give away, the more God entrusts with them and the more they can keep giving away. The mystery of God's economy comes to life through faith. You know, this coming Friday is my, uh, my one son is getting married. And unlike other weddings, which has been like, there's been like a couple of decade trend, nobody ever wears tuxes anymore, right? So they're wearing tuxes. And, and he said, Dad, could you wear a tux? We'd like the father of the groom and the father of the bride to wear a tux. I said, well, sure. I mean, back when I got married 34 years ago, my, both our dads wore tuxes. You might not have ever known that ever happened, but it did back then. And so, uh, you know, they're, my son and his, my daughter-in-law, they're really into the, like the classic look. So it's going to be, you know, ladies all in black. It's all black and white. Really cool. Anyway, so nowadays... Um, or maybe this is, I don't know if it's just a COVID thing or what it is, but now you don't, you know, you used to go to the tuck shop, get the fitting there. Well, I went to a fitting in a different place and now it all happens online. So they send it to me and I'm telling you the truth. My pants were like up to here. <laughs> like it was the funniest thing you've ever looked at. I, we sent a picture to our kids and they were all besides themselves except my son. And, um, so, you know, we've been on this online thing about, you know, getting our packages and, and actually the shirt was all wrong and the jacket was all wrong. And so and I'm, I'm talking to someone from India, getting it fixed. And she did a wonderful job, by the way. But 
all that makes this next illustration so much more poignant to me. It's from Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn says, suppose you have an important package to send to someone who needs it, and you take it to an overnight delivery service. What would you think if instead of delivering the package, the driver took it home? Then when you confront him, he says, well, if you didn't want me to keep it, why'd you give it to me in the first place? You say the package doesn't belong to you. Your job is to deliver it to the person who needs it. Friends, just because God puts money in our hands doesn't mean he intends for us to keep it. So, I spent a lot of time on this first point. We won't spend as much on the second. But the first part of the formula for healthy giving in local churches is mutual friendships. Mutual friendship. Pastor with church members, church with missionary and, uh, and, and partners and friends across the world. Mutual friendship is the first part of the formula. We've seen it all throughout this letter, right? It's a beautiful friendship. Paul prayed for them. Paul poured his life out for them. He taught them. He counseled them. He encouraged them. He was present enough to be a model of Christ-likeness. He was available and emotionally accessible. He even corrected them when necessary. And he labored to help them become spiritually mature. Yet Paul said to them, I am not spiritually superior to you. Paul did not hold a master-teacher paradigm. We Philippians share in the same grace, the same suffering, the same purpose. And Philippians, for your part, for their part, they prayed for Paul. They loved him for himself. They shared in the mission. They responded to his leadership, and they supported his needs. Paul is grateful. And Paul tries to express that, sometimes forthrightly, like in chapter 1, verse 7, when he said, or verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then sometimes with greater sensitivity, as we saw here in this chapter. Well, let's look just briefly at the second point, and that's love for the gospel. Mutual friendship, love for the gospel, make for healthy giving. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Or it's on the screen here behind you. In chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Paul said, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership Partnership means joint ownership. Joint ownership. Participation in a common purpose. Look down at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Motier points out that Paul does not need to define what he means by the gospel. He is able to take for granted that they hold the same good news as he, which can be summed up in the words salvation by faith in Christ. You see, at great risk, the Philippians supported Paul in his suffering and did not distance themselves from him for self-preservation. Some did that. Some distanced themselves because they were afraid. 
their ownership, the Philippians' ownership of the gospel and their response to him was why Paul could say in verse 5, he was confident Christ will finish his work in you. They supported him in his work to confirm, defend, and advance the gospel to new places and new cities. You know, over 50 times in this letter, Paul refers to Jesus or to one of his titles. There's not that many verses. Paul and this church have been drawn together in their common love for Jesus and appreciation for the cross. Knowing Jesus has totally changed the course of their life, their goals, their values. Jesus was the connecting point of their friendship, now more than a decade old. So, what do we have here? What have we said this morning? We said that mutual friendship and a shared love for the gospel, these shared values pave the way for healthy giving. When values are not shared, giving becomes obligatory or duty-driven, or one gives the bare minimum to save face, or one does not give at all. And the one who is in need resorts to some scheme, or they overpromise, or they use sales techniques to convince people to give. All of that leads to unhealthy giving, or no giving. A recent insurance company, I I'm kind of a aficionado on especially insurance company commercials, probably because I watch too much sports. But I did like this recent one. A recent insurance company has used in their ad campaign the mantra, no mascots or jingles, and has come up with a very creative way to say it. The message is, we don't need a superfluous way to get your attention because we do the basics of a good product at a competitive price. What are they aiming for? Shared values. On Paul's part, there is no manipulation. There's no shaming. There's no begging. He is without ego, so he was free not to covet. He has learned contentment related to what he's possessed. Giving or lack of giving was not going to impact his relationship with them. On the Philippians part, they gave to God first. They gave to God first. Despite some setbacks or obstacles that we're not aware of, they kept their commitment. This is the fabric of healthy giving. The shared values of mutual friendship, and love for the gospel. And when practiced, when we believe it is not, when we believe it not just theologically, but in practice, that it is better to give than to receive, then we will experience the results of healthy giving and Jesus and his church will not suffer in reputation. So, let me say just a few things this morning in terms of where do we go from here? What, what difference does this really make in my life? What is here for us to imitate? What's here for us to imitate is this, is a local church and church 
planting missionaries, our church planting teams, our missionary partners who are building the kingdom of God in unique and creative ways to enter into a vitalized partnership, working together to advance the kingdom of God. Let me go back to that story in Kiev. It is pronounced Kiev, by the way. Learned that when I got there. We took, I think, a total of six trips there. I don't know how much money was spent altogether, but it was certainly tens of thousands. To work together with others in expanding the kingdom of God. Some of you went. Many of you gave sacrificially to send our fellow members. As a church, we supported the missionaries there, along with many others. Some of you supported them from your own resources. As a result, today, there are two churches there, led by Uh, native Ukrainians, and they are filled with many followers of Jesus. You participated in that work, Linworth. You were a result of what happened. You, Linworth, will share in the reward of what happened. Work that spins out into eternity. It is part of your story. It is part of our story. We shared with the missionaries, Robbie and Chris McAllister, a mutual friendship and a love for the gospel. Giving to them, giving to send short-term mission teams was an absolute blast, joy, and privilege. It was hard work indeed, and there was sacrifice, but it was a joy. It was a privilege. You see, that's the exact model that we see here in Philippi in their relationship with Paul. And so to this very day, we continue to support many missionaries, many uh, gospel workers extending the kingdom of God around the world. I think we have 14 now mission partners. They're doing good all over the world. They are serving the poor. They are lifting up the downcast. They are feeding the hungry. They are sheltering the refugee. They are defending the unborn, and they are communicating the amazing story of Jesus and his forgiveness of sins. And your giving supports that work. And your giving supports the work here. It supports our pastors it supports our ministries. It supports our outreaches. Would Again, just stop here to remind you that we're in the middle of this beautiful outreach, compelling outreach called Discover Life, using the Alpha videos. We had our first night, Wednesday night. Had a number of our friends far from God participate and come to that time. Again, you're a part of supporting that. And FYI, each of those nights stand on their own. So bring a friend this week to that time. Friends, as leaders, we've not had to beg. We've not had to scheme. We've not had to shame. And we've had all that we've needed. So that we can focus on what is credited, and this is not spin. So that we can focus on what is credited to your spiritual account. For your part, you share in the work alongside of us as you serve, as you pray, as you give from your resources. Now, lastly, I just want to say this. Paul urges, I believe it's the Corinthians, 
to, you can excel still more in giving. And I believe there are some of you that you can still excel more in this realm. It may not be to our local church. It may be to ministries outside of our church. And then others of you, you've never even entered into this. You've never entered into this wonderful world of letting go and trusting God to meet your needs. So whether you're stuck in a pattern that needs to be reevaluated or you have never given, I want to encourage you to go back to verse 19. My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And I don't say this for my account, your experience of this, I say it for your account. That I want you to have this spiritual experience of God meeting your need. See, it comes down to this. Do you believe God is sufficient for all that you need? That's what it comes down to. Do you believe God is sufficient for all that you need? Material? Emotional? Relational? So let me encourage you to believe and to act and to see what God does. Test God in this and see if God does not show up revealing more of himself and revealing more of his power to you. And by the way, what is true in money is also true of your other resources. Time. Reality, for some of us, time may be the more precious commodity that's harder to give away. Time, emotion, heart, doesn't matter. When you give it away, you experience him in a wholly new way. Meeting your unique needs, showing himself to be entirely sufficient for all that you need. David and uh, band, come on up. I'm going to share one last thing. There's an old, the chorus of an old hymn, I had opportunity to remember it this past week. It goes like this. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace. For even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame, oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. Amen.